I'm reading from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 30. Jesus left there and went to, into his own hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's his wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't he the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead? For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with, with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. 
So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Thank you. Thanks, Joan. Now, at what point do you normally give up on something? When you're you know, trying to get something done and you might be out of your depth, at what point do you normally just give up? For kids, it's often, you know, they start colouring in something and then it's like, oh, I went out of the line, so they scrunch it up and throw it away. Maybe you try to write something and you kind of go, no, delete that, maybe it's on your phone, you've drafted a text message, oh, I don't know if they'll get that, I might delete. What point do you normally give up? I um, will give up when something's genuinely too hard. Once I tried to change the headlight in my car and my hands are just, and my wrists and my, I guess the rest of me is probably just too big to get into those little crevices and my kids aren't old enough to put their skinny arms in there to actually know what they're doing. So I've been driving around with only one headlight, only in the daytime. I haven't been driving this car at night time. But I've been driving around like that for six months and we both needed to go out the other night. So I'm like, oh, I better get that fixed. Pull into one of the um, super autobahn shops. I won't say which one, but I pulled in there and the bloke came straight out and he said, oh, what one do you need? Pulled it straight out. I'm like, that took me 45 minutes when I tried to do it. Pulled it straight out. He went inside. He said, do you want me to fit it for you? And I said, how much? And he said, five bucks. And I'm like, I don't want to say what I said because we're in church. But I said, yes, thank you very much, sir. And he put it in there and I was out. I I gave up because it was just too hard. Maybe you like that with diets. Yeah, have you been there? Tried a diet? Given up after a while? It's just too hard. You keep getting invited to things where people want to feed you. Um, It can be too hard. Well... This question, it gives us a few angles to come at today's passage with. Is it time to give up? Because Jesus, you see, he goes home, goes into his hometown. Now, he's got a bit of a reputation by now. Is this going to be the homecoming for the little boy Jesus who's who's now done all these amazing things, who's who's created a real stir? Is he going to come home and find that everyone is excited about him. Well, when you look at how they actually received him, who is this kid? Is that going to make Jesus just want to give up? See, he goes in there, and it's a pretty harsh and thorough rejection from his hometown. See, he begins in his normal mode. In verse 1 of chapter 6, he goes on the Sabbath day, goes into the synagogue, he's doing his thing, he's reading, he's teaching. People are amazed, but what comes next? They start to ridicule him. They start to mock him. Isn't he the carpenter? Now, this is in a time before, you know, Bunnings or, or Hilux Utes or barber-style cuts for, for, um, for built carpenters. This is when they were like the real scum of the earth, kind of very low-level people. They're not like that now, are they? They're the guys with the big, nice white trucks that drive around through Bunnings sipping their lattes. But... Back then, it was 
back-breaking hard labour. For them to say, isn't this the carpenter? They're having a real dig at him. Not only that, they don't even name him by whose son he is. They name him by whose son he's the, sorry, not who his father was, but who his mother was. And what they're actually doing there, we think, is they're dragging up the whole scandal around his birth. Because you will remember that Jesus was the child of a teenage mum who wasn't married. Isn't this Mary's son? You know, the one, you know, you remember when he was born? In this town, their faith is so lacking that as Jesus tries to heal, the healing doesn't happen. See, they can't accept the idea that the boy they knew growing up could carry any authority. Is this the point to give up? Should Jesus just pack it up? See, he's drawn crowds of strangers, but he can't get the people that have known him for basically all his life as a child and as a teenager and as a young man and as their carpenter, he can't get them to accept him. Now, I think in our culture, in small towns, if anyone makes it kind of any fame for themselves, we want to latch onto it, you know. So-and-so was from here. You drive through Kempsey, the home of Slim Dusty. Oh, is that the right? Is that the bloke? Slim Dusty? Country music? Yep. All, of, all the people that once lived in casino are nodding their heads. We say things like, did you know that she was from here, you know, during an Olympic Games? Oh, they're from a town where my grandma grew up. I went to school with such and such. Jesus is getting none of that treatment. And this is really what's at the heart of it. He's turned up and he's preached the same message. Isn't that what's going on? And what is his message? He's calling people to repent, to have the faith to come and follow you. Now, on one level, Jesus teaches us here that they say they can't follow because he's the little boy that, you know, you used to walk past my house on the way to school. But at the heart of the message that he's brought to these people that he knows reasonably well is a message that is now, he is the God whom all sinful people are in rebellion against. And the message is to repent from that. Jesus has already said this is how people will respond. I've got a visual version of the parable of the sower, and we never actually went through this one, but he's already told people that people are going to respond this way. That as his word goes out, for some people their heart is so hardened that it just won't do anything. Well, here is some hard soil. Actually, what goes in between these parables that Jesus told and the part that we're up to is four stories that all illustrate some part of this. What Mark has shown in the meantime, from where we left off to where we're up to today, in the event of calming the storm, in the story where he drives demons into pigs, in the story where he heals the bleeding woman and raises the dead girl, which we shared with the kids, it shows time and time again, that Jesus is clearly God. It shows his power over creation, power over evil, over illness and over death, making it clear that Jesus is God. And while there's a consistent response of amazement, there's only a few responses of faith among all the amazement, all the fear that is going on there. And so here Jesus is in his hometown and he's impressing no one. 
Jesus says it like this, a prophet isn't honoured in his own town where he is well known. And I want to pick up on that, the familiarity with Jesus. And I ask myself this question, I ask it to you today. Are you really familiar with Jesus? Really familiar, but in that way where you're not really close with him. Sometimes familiarity can lead us to some kind of distance. And in our Christian walk, if that happens, it can leave us feeling dry or without joy. It can lead us to harboring sin because we're so familiar in a way that we think it just doesn't matter that much. We're very familiar with the truth in a way that doesn't really hit home in our heart. And that doesn't always happen. But I think if we're to learn anything of this, it's that, that that can happen and be on our guard about it. In fact, that's one of the big motivations that we've had to, to look at a gospel again to kick off this year, to preach through it, for you to be reading privately, to be coming around it in small groups, that Jesus wouldn't just, we wouldn't just be remember the stuff that we knew about him, but that he would continue to walk off the pages, that we would see more of his glory. Because like we said with the kids, he's amazing beyond our comprehension. And so that means none of us has fully comprehended how amazing he is. So there should be no end to our searching into that. We don't want to be like the people in his hometown. Now, in the telling of Jesus' life, this story where he goes home is kind of like a hinge between where he's been and where he's going to now. And he takes us into... uh, uh, beyond the region of Galilee, where he sends his disciples out to preach. And he does that in those first verses. And then back in, in verse 30, where we finished this morning, they return. And sandwiched into the middle of that, we see this whole other story. It's actually a flashback story about what happened with John the Baptist when he confronted Herod. Now, this is something that Mark does when you read his gospel. He does these things that sometimes get called sandwich stories. I reckon about over a decade ago in church, we preached through all these specific instances of it. It's pretty easy to understand. Mark starts off telling one story, and he finishes that story off, but in the middle of telling it, he throws in a completely different story. And the story that's in the middle normally unlocks what's going on on the outside. He did it with the story about the little girl, Jairus' daughter, And then the lady, smack bang in the middle. Well, in this part of the story, and when Jesus is sending them out, what Jesus is doing there is he's priming his disciples to be ready to share his message, to join in with him the the calling of people to come and follow him. And I think John the Baptist's story has been put here right in the middle and Mark's very upfront that it's just a recount. It's not something that actually happened in this chronological order. But it's put there smack bang in the middle of this story to illustrate how this message confronts unbelief. How it confronts unbelief. So let's go to the second part of verse 6 and pick up from there. What happens? Well, Jesus goes out to preach and he sends his disciples out to preach. Now, 
as we've been talking about following Jesus, this gives us a clue. Our following Jesus is going to mean in some way replicating what Jesus did. That doesn't mean that we are the saviour, but that we will be like him, not just in character, but also in the things that we did. And so we see it with the disciples. They're given some authority. Now their authority was to heal and to drive out demons. As they go out, they're instructed to live simply. They're instructed to be not focused or or get caught up in comfort, but they're they're kind of presented in a way where, where they're reminded of the urgency of this message going out. And they're told not to stay anywhere that they're not welcome. Now, it's important to remember here that they're going into Jewish villages as Jewish men. So these points of living simply and showing the power of God and not staying anywhere they aren't welcomed, that makes the most sense of of those facts, that they're Jewish people calling other Jewish people to repent because the Jewish Messiah has come. Now, you and I are also sent but we are in a different context. And we're in a context where we go to people that might not know all that much. Sure, we live in a nation that has had some Christian heritage, but it doesn't take many generations for Jesus to not be more than a swear word in the mind of a teenager now, with no real understanding of that. So as we are sent out, we've got to remember that we're, we are in a different context to these instructions that Jesus gave to his disciple here. But what hasn't changed is that the powerful word of God is with us, not just that little bit of authority that Jesus gave to his disciples. We've got the whole word of God and we're to teach the word. And we actually don't need to live so tightly. There's a passage in 1 Thessalonians that really sums up how we're to live on mission wherever we are. I'm not going to read it all for you now, but that key part of it, living quiet lives where we are, is probably the best tone for us to understand. Maybe study that later for yourself. But here's the thing. Everyone, back then and now, needs to know about Jesus. We know that. The gospel being proclaimed and taught is how that happens. Now, it can be more than that. It can be in the way that we love each other, serve one another, but it is never less than that. It is never less than the gospel being proclaimed and taught. And we've got to remember too that gospel, we often say it means good news. It actually means monumentous news, like really significant news. Now it is good news when it's received. But when it is rejected, it actually has another effect where it stands in judgment against the person. Does that make sense? Because it calls you. It calls you to repent and there is an implication if you will not repent, that you remain in your sin. It's good news if we will receive it, but it is not good news if we won't receive it. Jesus himself in his own town, Jesus couldn't convince anyone. And so Jesus in sending them, he tells them, if you go into a town and they won't listen to you, shake off your boots. If someone won't accept the message, that is on them, he says. Now, in Jewish culture, that's what Jewish people would do when they walked through a non-Jewish town. They would be so um, offended or by them, these people being not Jewish that they would literally dust the boot, uh, the, the, the dust off their feet in kind of like a standing over the town that they just 
through, been through, to, to show them what they thought of them. Jesus here is subverting that idea. He subverts that idea, showing where a Jewish person stands if they won't accept him as the Messiah. That's what's going on there. But for us, we just need to be aware what we're up against as we go out. Don't forget this. Sin is rebellion against God. Like, sure, sin can be spelled out in a bunch of things, but at its heart, it is a rebellious attitude toward God. And so speaking the gospel to sinful people means presenting the message that calls them out from that. It's not easy. It's not straightforward. It goes to the heart of something in a person that is set against their creator. It's, it's akin to asking Gollum to give up the ring. It's so central to who they are. And it can often lead us to thinking, what if we, what if we could just soften the message a little bit? What if we just... What if we just eased up on it? Or it's too hard. Should we just give up on it? Now, either of those things can sound like they will make things easier for us, sure. But both of those things mean something will always be true, that no one will be saved. If the person who shared with you, maybe it was a parent or a grandparent who taught you, maybe it was the preacher that preached on that day when you gave your life, Maybe it was the neighbour who witnessed to you or the youth leader who challenged you, whoever came into your suburb or village or here on beach mission or whatever it was. If they'd given up on you or if they'd watered down the gospel, you would not be sitting here right now as a child of God. Our circumstance, it does require a more patient strategy than just shaking the dust off our boots. But we're doing more than telling Jews that the Messiah is here. And as we go out with the gospel, as we're going with the gospel, we must not water the message down and we must not give up. And so it goes on here to the middle of the sandwich. News spreads as Jesus and his disciples go out. And it's becoming clear and clear that he has the power of God. He's looking like a prophet. And so Herod, who is Israel's uh, Israel's king, he catches wind of him. Now, here, only what happens in verses 14, 15, and 16 are actually part of the narrative. And verses 17 to 29, they're all kind of flashback, you know, like in a movie or a TV show where they fill in the backstory for you, maybe they put it in sepia or a black and white. Well, that's what Mark's doing here in how he's written for us. And he puts this in because Herod is confused. See, the rumor about Jesus is that he's John the Baptist. But at this point, John the Baptist is dead. He's known to be dead. He was executed by the king. For people to be saying John the Baptist is around, they're actually claiming that he's resurrected. And so there, John's like, that's, that's their explanation for why Jesus can do the miracles that he does. Look, it's in verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become so well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work with him. Makes me think I'm watching a Marvel movie that somehow he's been resurrected to life again and all of a sudden he's come back with all these superpowers and that's who Jesus is. But it's not just that. It's, it's all these names that are there. It's not just John the Baptist, but also Elijah or a prophet of long ago. They're all recognizing something in Jesus. 
that he is a powerful prophet of God. It's, it's established there by the people that believe him and the people that don't believe him that he was powerful, that he could do miracles. They believed that he must have been from God, but they can't work out who he is. And Herod is the most confused because it's on his heart that he killed John the Baptist. Now remember, Mark's slotting this story in here and like the middle of a sandwich, sorry, it's like the middle of a sandwich that has been slotted in here and it's partly to explain what's happening, giving the backstory and partly to teach us something about what Jesus was saying to his disciples when he was sent them out. So keep that in mind. You've got to remember John here, John the Baptist. His ministry was to go ahead of Jesus and to call people to repentance. And part of doing that, we learn that John had called out Herod, Herod who was Israel's king. He'd called him out when he'd taken, Herod had taken his brother's wife and married her for himself. It's a pretty nasty story. And we learn here that in turn, his new wife had nursed a grudge against John. And although she wanted John dead, all that Herod could bring himself to do was to lock him up. Now Herod obviously didn't know what to make of John. Listen to what verse 20 says about him. Because Herod feared John and protected him. He knew him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. It's a strange description, isn't it? Yet for all his intrigue and respect of John, when Herod's stepdaughter and wife figure out a way that, to get what they want, to get John killed, they're at a lavish and probably pretty boozy and seedy kind of party where his stepdaughter's dancing for them all. I don't want to dig into that at all, but it's not a pretty picture. Herod gives in, saves face, and orders that John's head be wickedly presented on a platter. Now, that's why we didn't do that story for the kids' talk, because it's not very nice. But what does it show us? How hard sinful hearts are. Isn't it? Like, who does that? We do that. We do that. Hearts set in rebellion against God. When someone is stuck in sin, sin becomes deeply, deeply ingrained in their heart. Often people like to look at the world and society and think, is the world getting more sinful? I don't know that it's actually that easy to establish that. I think it moves far more in circles. But what I think you can establish is you look at someone's life, as they grow older and their heart is set in their sin, that heart becomes harder and harder and harder and harder. And it's like without Jesus, we just will become more sinful, more ingrained in our sinful ways, more convinced that what we do is not wrong, more proud of even what we do. When Herodias left her husband for her brother, who was the king, was she at that point the kind of woman that would behead someone? We're speculating, but she probably wasn't. 
But to have a hairy and out there prophet of God call you out for what you've done, well, it's going to go one of two ways. You're going to repent or you're going to ask for his head on a platter. You dig in, your heart gets harder. And that's what you see here. So for us to be entrusted with the message of repentance means that we're going to speak a message that calls people out of that sinful rebellion. We get that? Now sometimes, often, that is a liberating message because it carries the beautiful news of his grace and his freedom. But sometimes it hardens the hearts of people that hear it because they will not repent. So you get to the end of this story. Verse 30, the, the disciples returned to Jesus. But back in the main storyline, we don't really know how they went when they went out there. I think we're right to assume that it was a mixed response, the kind of response that Jesus primed them for. But we've got to realise this. When Mark was writing his gospel, he threw that story in there because he knew the first Christians would be reading this and they would be on the other side of this, going into the world with this message. And they needed to know what the prophets of God faced, the opposition that they faced. They needed to know the opposition the disciples faced. They needed to know the opposition that Jesus faced. Where in one week of arriving as king into Jerusalem, he was hung on a cross mocked, deserted even by the 12 that followed him. They needed to know that. We need to hear this. We need to know this. Because this is what we will face. To abandon the message, to change the message, that won't save anyone. But the gospel of grace that we stick to, it does this. It calls people out of their rebellion against God. And if it doesn't save them, it hardens them further. Now, this is a hard truth for any of us to process. People can be amazed, like the crowds have been, but not saved. People can be hostile and not saved. Only people that repent and believe are saved. And repentance is owning that you're sinful and handing it over to Jesus as the one that can do it. Deal with it. So here's what we've got to do. We've got to follow Jesus, knowing that that's going to mean facing hostility of the, from the world because our world is set against him. Human hearts are marred by sin. And human hearts that remain that way remain set against him. But we're to never give up. Not to give up in our own following. Not to give up on the truth. And not even to give up on those hardened people. Because no one is too hard for God to come along and change that hard heart. And how do you know that's true? Because he did it for you. And he did it for me. We know that's what he does. And so God will give us patience and endurance. I know this is heavy. It's been heavy to give. It might be the first time that you've heard this aspect of, of the gospel preached. But know that it's the words of our Saviour 
who is full of compassion and grace and love. In his hometown, he was mocked. In his name, we will be mocked. But we're not to give up. We're not to lose heart. We're not to alter the message to make it more palatable. But we can press on in the endurance and patience that he gives us. Let that be our prayer. Father, we thank you for our Saviour Jesus. Lord, just give us in our hearts a sense of what he faced. Lord, not just as he went to his hometown, but even went with his friends to the city of Jerusalem only to be abandoned and counted among the wicked as he was hung on the cross. Lord, thank you for all that we know about what he was doing, that in going there for us, that he created a path through our sinfulness. Lord, that he took away our sinfulness and Lord, that he gave us new life. And so Lord, give us the boldness and confidence to go into a world that is hostile to you Lord, with open eyes and with his compassion. But Lord, also with the realistic expectations that this part of your word sets for us. Lord, we ask for your mercy and compassion on people's hearts who are hard. Lord, we ask for your comfort in our sadness when we know this to be of people that we deeply love whom are in our families and our streets and our groups of friends. So Lord, we ask that you would give us the patience to keep faithfully witnessing. And Father, we ask you for the patience to keep living faithfully in front of them. And Lord, we ask and plead with you, Lord, that you would come into their life by the power of your spirit and soften hard hearts. Lord, do that all around us, we pray. Do it all around us. Lord, that we might see many people come to know the goodness of the news that you sent your son. And Lord, that they wouldn't be left stuck in their sin. And Lord, we know that we can only come to you to see that happen. So Lord, keep us faithfully in prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.